welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 300th episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I can't believe it. It's been a while. The podcast has undergone a lot of changes since I first started it. As a matter of fact, when I first started, it was a live radio program every Monday at one. And then I took a break when I went back to school to get my DPT. And now we're here 300 episodes in, and I couldn't be happier to have my guest today for this 300th episode. And that guest is my friend and physiotherapist, Ben Cormack. He owns and runs Core Kinetic. Core Kinetic provides educational courses based on modern movement and pain science within a strong evidence-based framework. They have delivered courses in Europe, Asia, the United States, and South America, and present regularly at national and specialist subject conferences around the world. Ben is a musculoskeletal therapist with a clinical rehabilitation and exercise background stretching back 15 years. He specializes in a movement and exercise-based approach with a strong education component and patient-centered focus. So again, everything related to his website is over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode, so you can find everything there and also some of the things that and people that we spoke about today. Um, and he, we say this in the episode, but I'm going to say it again. He's coming, for those living in the United States, he's coming to the U.S. in 2018, and in particular in New York City in April. So if you want to make a trip to New York City, if you live in the New York City metro area, then definitely go to his website, Core Kinetic, and check it out and come to his course in April. So you'll hang out with him, you'll hang out with me, and a bunch of other um, sure-to-be-wonderful people. So Big thank you to Ben for coming on to the podcast today. And now, what did we talk about? Oh my gosh, a lot. So we talk about how exercise influences pain, how keeping healthcare more patient-centered with exercise is so important, how to communicate pain science both verbally and experientially, and Ben's five A's of exercise adherence. And this is great. It's towards the end of the podcast. And I think it gives a really great framework for clinicians when it comes to prescribing exercise, when it comes to combining uh, education in pain and in neuroscience with exercise with this patient to make sure that they do the things we want them to do and to make sure that they want to do the things we want them to do, which is really important. So a huge thanks to Ben for coming on this episode, and I hope you all enjoy it. Hey, Ben, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. And for those of you who don't know Ben, uh, he is Ben Cormack, owner of Core Kinetic and based in England. So welcome. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. yeah so just let's... wanted to say it was a real honor for you to uh, invite me on to, to, to have a chat. Well, I've only been trying to do that for, I don't know, since the San Diego Pain Summit. I, I'm elusive, I'm yes, afraid. I'm like yes. the Scarlet Pimpernel. Exactly. So it took a lot. It took nine months almost. It wasn't for it wasn't for a lack of desire, Karen. The desire's always been there. Very true, very true. Even after I looked for that unicorn of a cookie for your wife that I don't think exists, oh. by the way. It's like a devil's no. food cake, chocolate chip chips ahoy. If anybody finds that, please send it to Ben because his wife would be forever grateful. Yeah, it's just like my wife to find like an uh, an unfindable. She tasked me to find the unfindable cookie, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I, I failed again. But Karen was, uh, yeah, she was. We were, all, we, you know, we worked hard, didn't we? We did. We worked hard in the state of California oh, to we find worked, that. We worked hard. <laughs> it just didn't happen. Okay, no, no, it never could. <laughs> no. So I'm telling you, people, if you're in the U.S. and you find it, send it to Ben. He'll be very happy. Um, Just write Ben UK and it will get to me. <laughs> it's, it's like magic. Today we're going to be talking about exercise and pain science. But before we get to that, can you give the listeners a little bit more of a background as to your interest in pain science? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I was probably like most other people 
um, you know, in terms of looking at how we looked at the body um, biomedically, if you want to say, or biomechanically or whatever. And I've done, you know, quite a few courses in the past that were very biomechanically driven. And I thought I was uh, reasonably good at some of this kind of biomechanical stuff. I kind of had it down a little bit. Um, And then I think that, you know, you start to be exposed to some data and some science that kind of starts to poke some holes in it. And I think there's kind of two types of people, Um, maybe the type of people that kind of, um, you know, what put their head in the sand or potentially, um, you know, uh, you know, fight against the information. But for me, it was overwhelming. It it was kind of there was so much of it that really kind of poked the holes in, in the things that I really believed in. And, uh, and from there, I think, you know, I started to think more critically. I started to, you know, um, just take much more of an interest in finding out what was uh, maybe, I don't, I don't want to say true, but maybe what was, what was uh, less true in what I currently believed. And then I think that as a lot of these kind of more um, traditional principles for me fell away, to some degree that was replaced by, Um, a whole heap of uncertainty, which is the world of pain science, but it also seems to explain a little bit more. So I think it doesn't explain things specifically, but it gives us a little bit more of a framework for the unexplained, you know, uh, and I think that's quite a powerful thing. So actually, I end up coming from a place of certainty to a place of uncertainty, um, but I feel all right with it. (laughs) And I think that's a great way to for a great way for people to understand who maybe are just dipping their toes into into the research behind pain and the science behind pain because there is a lot of uncertainty to it but i think it gives some plausibility to some complex pain conditions that maybe wasn't there before oh no i completely agree and i think that's where it's really really useful is that people are always looking for a rationale or an answer for their problem Now, we know that that's very, very difficult. Like back pain is a great example. You know, the 1% is serious, 5 to 10% is, say, ridiculous, etc. 90% is kind of non-specific or or, or, or kind of unexplained. Um, You know, but that might be from the perspective of being able to pin it to a specific structure. So I think that what it enables us to do is just gives us a little bit more of a way of explaining potentially what that 90 percent means. We can give people a rationale. We can give them an answer, but it doesn't have to be a definitive answer that says it's this or it's that. We can maybe understand some broader concepts such as sensitization or plasticity or some of these uh, other factors that we start to understand about, you, you know, pain. That, that pain and, and tissue state don't equal each other. What you're currently experiencing isn't a, a direct reflection of the state of your body. You know, and I think that's a really powerful thing. I also think that there's some negatives sometimes that we just throw, you know, science and about, uh, you know, different anatomy like nerves and brains and all these other things at people. So I don't think it's perfect and I don't think we've worked it out for everybody. Um, and I still think there's a lot of work to do for delivery. Um, but also at the same point, what it allows us to do is is is, is uh, talk to people about some of the uncertainty that they're suffering and talk to people about why their problem is unexplained and what that really means. But not unexplained as in unexplained as no one has any answer, but unexplained by traditional medical biomedical rationales, you know, because there was a, there's work by a nurse, Michelle. Um, at M-I-S-H-E-L. Um, and she did work into uncertainty and how uncertainty creates stress and actually increases pain. So for me, part of the application of pain science helps us help people to, to make sense of what's happening to them. And I think that is a huge, big part of dealing with people therapeutically. And if you can help people deal with that uncertainty and decrease their fear and decrease their certainly fear around moving because they think that they're going to be continuously injuring themselves or they're going to be continuously doing themselves damage. That's very powerful because if people have that knowledge that, well, I guess I can move, then it makes it a lot easier for us as physiotherapists to provide one of the things that 
we're really experts in, and that's exercise. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about combining pain science and exercise and what maybe we don't know yet. Well, I mean, I think we know a lot about exercise, um, you, you know, about physiology, mechanotransduction and all these other bits and pieces of information. And I think we know more about pain. One of the things that I don't really think we know a lot about is how exercise influences pain. You know, I think that we, from in some senses, we do from a traditional sense. If we have a muscle tear or strain or something like that, and we provide a load that creates uh, mechanotransduction that gets paracrine and autocrine signaling going and all these other factors. But we also know that there's a hell of a lot of injuries that don't have physical damage per se. You know, if we think about tendinopathy, for example, we know the relationship between structure and pain and tendinopathy is, is, is very poor. We also know that exercise, you know, if we take loading, for example, we know that people get better, but their structures don't change that much. So if we think that exercise is designed to have an effect on the structure, but the structure hasn't changed, but the pain has, then maybe the mechanism is wrong. So... I think that what we really need to do is, um, you know, put our hands up and be honest and say the exercise does seem to be like uh, quite a powerful thing that we, we can give people if we put it in, in the right context. Um, but we're not quite sure exactly how it works. Um, could it work for all the reasons that we don't think it does? Um, you know, you, you give it to someone. So I might give someone an exercise that I've done my best clinical reasoning and rationale on. And that exercise could work, but it doesn't validate my reason. And I think that's really important to keep that in mind critically, that even if what you do works, we, uh, it still maybe doesn't do it for the reason that you think it does, um, which is powerful. So how could exercise affect pain? Could it be kinematics, a change in movement? Could it be kinetics, a change in energy distribution? Could it be load tolerance, a change in someone's load tolerance? That, that's completely plausible, a change in maybe what happens at a cellular level. Could it be neurological? Could it be cognitive? You know, it might be we have the decoupling of pain neurons and movement neurons if we move in a different way. Um, so elements of kind of pain memories, etc. But, you know, people like Zeusman have talked about in the past. Could it be that people it's just a basic cognition thing that I thought it was going to be poor, um, you know, or I thought I was going to have a bad outcome. We did a movement. It was in a safe environment with a therapist and it didn't turn out to be bad. So I've updated my prior expectation and that would be a cognitive thing. You know, so I've just given you like five different reasons why exercise could have an effect on someone's pain. I couldn't tell you that any of them actually work definitively. I suppose this is where we get into plausibility versus evidence. So rather than say it's plausible that it works, I think what we should say is, does it work? What's the plausible mechanism? Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes what we tend to do is say that's plausible. So therefore it works. And I think that's a reasoning error. You know, just because something's plausible doesn't mean it works. If we've tested it and it works, let's look for a plausible mechanism. That would be the way around that I would look. So I would say I'm pretty confident that exercise across lots of mus musculoskeletal conditions has been shown to be positive. So, ex yeah, so if we look at something like exercise for lower back pain, um, you know, they, they're, luckily they've tested a whole bundle of um, different exercises against each other. So we can take people going for a walk versus specific high load, um, you know, um, strength training or sitting on a bike and doing Pilates or deadlifting versus pelvic tilts or whatever. And actually, we see that they all come out in about the same place. So it's obviously not that specific in some ways, you know, as in this type of exercise is the best for back pain as a whole, um, which I think gives us a lot of scope to be very patient-centered and in individual-centered, which for me is exceptionally empowering. Um, another great example is things like, uh, there was a paper recently for rotator cuff tendinopathy. Now, the big thing in rotator cuff tendinopathy, or sorry, in tendinopathy in general, is loading. So, you know, get the load on it, heavier loads, HSR, heavy, slow resistance. Well, I've seen a couple of papers now that have suggested that actually, 
it doesn't matter what you do. Exercise is important. The load is isn't as important, you know, and this is being very evidence based. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, we looked, there was another paper that compared heavy, slow resistance for Achilles tendinopathy with the old Alfredson eccentric protocol. Again, we didn't really see a difference in outcome. So we have these rationales for how exercise helps. But often when we hit in there and actually compare them, um, we see that they all come out about the same place. Now, I think part of the problem potentially with that is we just say anything goes. And I'm not sure it does because we have to think about other things like adherence and whether people have access to equipment and, and, and these kind of factors. But certainly I don't think we know that much about how exercise specifically works for painful conditions. But I, I'm okay with it. Yeah, and I think like you just said a few minutes ago, that it's quite empowering for not just the patient, but also for the physio. Because yes, we know that exercise is helpful. We have some plausible ways as to maybe why it's helpful. But it makes it, I think, more empowering for the physio because you don't have to follow a strict A, B, C, D protocol, but that you can you look at the patient and what the patient is presenting and what the patient needs and what their cognition and what their emotions are around exercise. And now you have a whole basket full of exercises to choose from versus having that mentality of, well, we, you know, you have a tendinopathy, we can only do eccentrics. Do you know what I mean? Oh, look, massively so. You know, I, I think that what a lot of people do, you, you know, therapists, is they like to have a bit of cognitive efficiency. You know, and a cognitive efficiency very much. You know, we all like that. Six o'clock on a Monday evening, who doesn't like a bit of cognitive efficiency whereby I don't have to think that much? Right. You know, right. so if we had one really cool exercise that fixed everything, um, you know, that would be great. We've been down those roads, right? VMO exercises, um, core stability exercises. We know that they're no better, you know, than, than, than other, you know, we know that open chain and closed chain exercises for the knee don't seem to be that different. Um, so why do you pick one over the other? Well, it has to be a patient focus, which I think is, is good for everybody. You know, and I don't think, I don't think it takes that much reasoning. Um, but as I say, it's a, it's a phrase that I like to use is cognitive efficiency, or, or we could put it less politely, which is sometimes laziness. Yeah, slightly, slightly less polite. Um, yeah, I know I like to be, you know, my polite British self. Yeah, slightly less polite. But what we've talked about so far, a lot of very high concepts. So how can we communicate these concepts to our patients in a way that will foster this self-efficacy and consistency? Yeah, I mean, look, I think communication is such, you know, if you talk about fun, for example, fun, a shared fun experience is, is you know, a therapeutic alliance, and that's a form of communication within itself. You know, that you two people are sharing an experience, you know, and that and that communicates a certain feeling or, or, or a certain, you know, or, or imparts a certain kind of um, something on, you, you know, what, what, what you've got going on between two people, which is which is really important. Um, when it actually comes down to communication itself, I think there's some real key points that that we have to look at and firstly i think that especially when we look at exercise and movement um and this is something my my friend mark cargina brought up recently in a discussion that we were having you know it's not always about education and communication can sometimes be about doing rather than talking and uh, and those kind of things so communication can be experiential and not always verbal you know uh, and i think that's where movement and exercise are quite powerful in that we can communicate concepts to people and they don't always have to be verbal. They can be experiential um, as well. But if I'm actually trying to get across some maybe some actual kind of pain science concepts or let's not even say pain science concepts, let's say modern concepts of the body. You know, if we think about our previous concepts of the body, uh, when I first started getting into all this stuff many, many moons ago, um, it would be, you know, that if you moved in the wrong way, your body would fall apart. Um, and now we're starting to understand, well, actually, if we, someone has osteoporosis, what do I tell them to go and do? I tell them to go to the gym, right, and make their bones stronger. So if my bones are degenerating and, um, and my cure for that is to go and load my body, 
I don't understand why actually moving in, in these subtle, tiny little wrong ways actually caused my body to fall apart. You know, so mm -hmm. I think communicating some of these concepts um, of modern, uh, a more modern view of the body, you know, that actually the body is, uh, is a pretty robust um, adaptational thing, you know. And one of my favorite examples for that is just simply, I, 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 I you know, it's hypertrophy that you go to the gym, um, you work out, and your body alters and it adapts, and you don't go to the gym, and it, and it, and it you know, we, uh, we get the opposite occur we we get atrophy yeah uh, the but the body the body still alters and adapts just not in the way we want it to exactly but the body's you know the body's always changing right according to what we do which is in its in a way empowering for people because they are then in control of that change you know that we can say well your body can change but you you've got to go away and do the things you know my approach would be your body can change you've got to make that happen but i'm going to help you get there you know, so I, I always like uh, one of my favorite ways to communicate some modern concepts, such as things like plasticity of the nervous system, which kind of directly relates between, say, pain and exercise. Um, I, you know, I always say to people, well, you know, the, the pain system and I might get shot down by some of the, you know, the pain philosophers. I still think the pain system is an OK thing to say um, that I think the pain system adapts if you if you uh, if you keep working it it gets better it gets stronger in the same way that your body adapts and gets stronger and potentially if you uh, if you if you're more in pain then you get better at being in pain you know and what exercise is there to do is to try and bring some of that sensitivity down and and try and um, enable us to get the kind of plasticity working in the opposite direction. Yeah, I use that quite a bit as well, almost the same phrasing. And uh, a lot of patients really seem to be able to grasp that and understand that. And I think when they start to see, even if it's a small change in pain or maybe a feeling of them feeling stronger, not as fragile, not as damaged, then that's a really uh, great way for them to keep themselves motivated and to keep pushing forward because they can see the change. Because oftentimes when you have chronic pain, I know from experience, you think, well, what does it even matter? No matter what I do, I'm going to have pain. But then once you start to have that glimmer of hope, even if it's just you wake up one day without pain, it is so motivating to keep you moving forward. Yeah. And I also think one that if, I know we, that um, adherence is, is a factor that I want to talk about in a little while. So, but Certainly one of the key factors with adherence is motivation and being able to help people um, build on those small glimmers of hope and provide motivation to people is a really um, strong part of what any therapist um, can do to make people more successful. You know, building on those slivers and just saying, look, there is change. There can be hope, um, you know, and we just need to, to just keep going and these things can can take a little bit of time and just, you know, slow change is kind of better than no change. So, you know, that is part of communication as well. So motivation, uh, I think, forms a really big part of helping keep people in the groove with it all. I think that's um, really important. But I, I must say the most important that I think about any communication uh, is listening. So I think it's really important that we are continually listening to people and being able to communicate with them and being able to communicate the concepts that we want to get across at their level and involving their experiences. I think we a lot of the time people drop, you know, PNE knowledge bombs on people about, you know, nociception doesn't equal pain and, you know, it's not sufficient or necessary and all these different things, which, you know, academically are very correct. But actually, if someone said that to to my wife or my mother, they probably wouldn't have a clue what that meant. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about communicating concepts, I think we need to look at things like health literacy, who we're speaking to, their educational levels, their interest levels. And it actually, for me, I really think tailoring how we communicate um, to people is probably one of the biggest things about communication, you know. And I think that if you took a car salesman, a really good car salesman is able to communicate across a whole kind of across the whole socioeconomic and educational spectrum in, in trying to get someone to buy into what they're selling. 
And I don't see any different for the therapist that you are selling, um, you know, your intervention um, and you want people to buy into that. So the way that you communicate that, I think, is really important and how you actually um, tailor that to their individual experiences and also tailor that to where they are at right now. Yeah, there's no question that the way you position yourself and communicate with one person has to change with the next person that walks through the door. If you just have that one sort of catchphrase that you say to everyone, it's not going to work. And please never say drop knowledge bombs again. I think that's kind of, you know, that someone has gone, they've dropped, you know, yeah. it doesn't equal damage. And then they go, boom, boom. I can just yeah. imagine them. Yeah, never, never say that again. well i'm going to send you an email of me just saying it repeatedly (laughs) oh my god i will crawl through the computer and like slap (laughs) you in the face (laughs) absolutely but no it's true Uh, and i unfortunately i think a lot of therapists who get these little nuggets from whether it be a single podcast or a single webinar you know you do a lot of webinars on the trust me i'm a physio page and they hear these little tidbits and think i got it I know, I know pain science. I'm going to, I'm going to work on this with my patients, but they don't delve into anything more. And I think that's a mistake because you can't just communicate a a nugget of knowledge or drop a knowledge bomb um, and then walk away because you don't know the rest of the story. Oh, look, I mean, do you know what the biggest thing about pain science is, is knowing when not to use it? Yeah, for sure. It, it just isn't applicable for everybody. And um, I did a blog last week, and what I asked um, some guys on Facebook, I put a little post out, and I asked people what they thought made, made really good um, application of pain science. Um, one of the big things that interests me at the moment isn't the, the, isn't the information or the knowledge aspect, it's the application and the delivery. And uh, so a couple of people came back and said, they ask people specifically if they want to know more. And for me, that was quite a revelation because I've never really thought about it like that, you know, and, and I had to say to myself, well, you've missed a bit of a trick there. You know, actually, should we be saying to people, are you interested? Is this information that you want? You know, and uh, potentially the biggest application of pain science is knowing what not to say rather than not what to say. Yeah. You know, yeah. knowing to stay away from you know, certain words that might have negative uh, influences, you know, and just, you know, maybe there are some things that we just don't need to say or things that we could rephrase that could be better. So just thinking about how we communicate might be a powerful application of um, kind of pain science rather than actually knowing this perfect piece of knowledge to drop. I find that what you said earlier about listening, if you listen and you understand where this patient, the person sitting in front of you is coming from, then you're going to know what to say and what not to say and how to phrase and rephrase. And, you know, these are, like I said, these are high concepts. This is very difficult information to take in. If anyone read Explain Pain Supercharged, it's not, it's a heavy read. It's not easy. But where your job as a therapist comes in is being able to simplify that for the individual in front of you. And you can't simplify something unless you know it pretty well. Hey, look, I, 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 com- I, I completely agree. Absolutely. And, and sometimes it just may not be applicable at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it might, absolutely. It, and that might be, and that even might be the majority of the time. We just don't know. Who is it most applicable for? We don't know. Right. Certainly, I think some of the stuff that people like Kieran O'Sullivan talk about with, you know, clarifying how people have actually understood what you've said <laughs> it is really important as well. So how not just pain science, but any health concept that you are trying to get across even if you were to take a biomedical concept such as core stability and you were to say you know you know for for some for some therapists core stability is a throwaway word now ben darlow did a really good bit of um kind of qualitative research into what things like that mean and some people felt like it meant their back was liable to go at any time if i said karen your apartment is unstable. How would you feel about your apartment? I would not probably not feel so great about it. You would probably not want to sleep the night in your unstable apartment. No. So, you know, we use these words quite throwaway, but we don't always realize the impact that they have. So even if we just take that concept 
as the very base of pain science or the very base of dealing with people, then I think that's a really powerful application. Yeah. And I mean, I just had a patient last week who she went to the doctor. They did an MRI. She had a tear in her rotator cuff. The doctors told her on Friday, you have a tear in your rotator cuff. This needs to be fixed. I'm scheduling you for surgery on Monday. And she was like, whoa, what? <laughs> well, that's efficiency, Karen. <laughs> what? And then she said, well, I, I, this doesn't seem right to me. So she went to another doctor. She found her way to me. And I kind of you know, worked with her and just tried to reassure her. But she was not moving her arm at all because she thought if I move it at all, it's just going to fall apart. And then when I saw her the very next day, I said, how are you feeling? She's like, so much better. She's like, now I know I can move my arm again. And she's like, and the pain is so much less. And she's like, much better. And all I did was give her some confidence in saying like, hey, I understand this muscle is torn, but you know something, you've got a lot of backup in that area. And, you know, like you said, if someone tells you you're unstable, you're not going to want to do things with that unstable, quote unquote, body part. So it's all about how you communicate. So you know, totally, it's the, and, and the base application of that would have just been as simply to present that information differently at the beginning. Right. That's yeah. what, you didn't need to drop a knowledge bomb. You didn't need to say pain doesn't equal this or et cetera. You just learn that and understand that people are influenced by what you say. And therefore, saying things in a way that doesn't influence them negatively is a positive. Yeah, there's no question. And I didn't even go into, you know, neurons and neuroplasticity or any of that as far as the science behind pain was concerned. Yet, that was very helpful. And at the end of the session, kind of like what you said, Kieran O'Sullivan, and when I took Peter O'Sullivan's course, Mm. he said at the end of his patient encounters he always asks them what did you get out of this what did how kieran says how would you explain it to your friends and family right right and and that's really powerful and then when you get that information back and you can say "Hmm, well it's kind of kind of and then if if there's a discrepancy you can go a little deeper with that and 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 what it really is it's the application of the science of people it's not even the application of the science of pain. It's, it's understanding people and understanding that kind of uh, knowing that we are not just physical beings. We're also, you know, more uh, very, very psychologically driven. I mean, if we look at some of the some of the emerging research, some of the, the progno- you know, the key prognostic factors aren't, you know, the size of a tear or how damaged you are or the diagnosis you get. It's just simply what is your predicted expectation of recovery? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have a positive outlook and you don't have a positive expectation or you don't believe in the program or you've been negatively influenced by previous information, that affects how you engage with what, what we're trying to do. You know, and this isn't about pain science. This is just understanding that human beings are, are psychologically driven as much as they are physically and physiologically driven. And, you know, that kind of leads me into the next thing I want to discuss. You alluded to it before, and that's adherence to our exercise and movements that we give to our patients with this framework of maybe the uh, a pain science explanation and with this framework of understanding the complexity of the human being and that their psychological issues may overtake some of those physical issues. So what do you use with your patients to improve adherence? Adherence is, um, uh, we've got actually some really good research into adherence. Um, and so I think that would be uh, a, a good kind of place to, to, to go with that, I think. And I always do this uh, when I teach. I always say to people, um, you know, I like, I like to get them to have a little bit of interaction, a bit of a show of hands and just say, what do you think the number one factor for people um, to kind of, you know, do exercises. And, and we've got some other data that suggests that, say, between 50 and 70% of exercise that gets given out by therapists just doesn't get done, um, you know, which is a big number, right? Very big, um, yeah. I think what we have to understand about exercise is the specifics really don't matter that much, but actually doing it does. So, you know, that means that actually all the time that we spend on these complex um, complex program design aspects uh, probably are less important than if we actually 
uh, understand that person and how they might fit into um, the exercise that we're trying to get them to do, or even, you know, actually create exercise selection based on that person. But I think that, you know, that what we have to remember is that people are mostly driven by habit, habit and behavior. Uh, and there's been a couple of good papers and both of them have shown that one of the number one key factors for exercise getting done is just if it fits someone's daily routine. If it doesn't fit your routine, say, here's an example. I need you to do a heavy loading program. You live 20 minutes from a gym. You've never used any kind of weights before. You're not very confident. Um, you're very time poor because your family pressures are, you know, your wife doesn't work. You're the main breadwinner. Um, you like to see your family as well. You've got two children. Um, you know, the time you get with them is very poor. You have highly pressured job. You find it hard to get to the gym, etc. You know, it might be that this best exercise that I gave you to do this deadlift or this single arm Bulgarian wood chop or, or whatever people give out. <laughs> I, I could have gone, we could have gone wilder with that. I reined that one in, you know, but it, it could be that that is the best exercise for the problem, but it's the worst exercise for you. So, you know, does that make it the best or the worst exercise? It depends if you're exercise focused or your people focused. So I think that we have to remember that if the exercise doesn't fit in with people, then it's not likely to get done. So I, as I say, I, my, I feel that my role these days is far more of a coach or far more of a manager. You know, if we were to look at, uh, you know, somebody who does a lot of manual therapy, maybe they're the, they're the star player. They do the magic. You've got magic hands. For me, it's much more about, facilitating people to do things themselves so i might sit with them and, and think about making sure that they can specifically do the exercise that they're confident at doing it but we've actually um set a specific time we've created reminders in their diary we've got plans of how they can specifically progress and regress themselves you know these are these are the things that i think provide the most support and i've got um i've got something that i call my five a's of exercise and i think that they kind of for me really facilitate adherence so it's the five a's of adherence and basically firstly it's aware of why they're doing it why does this exercise help? What, what is it likely to do for me? And I think that if people have an understanding of why that exercise might help, they tend to have more buy-in to actually do it in the first place. Why would you do something that you don't believe in? You know, I think a lot of people stop exercises because they just don't believe in it. They don't feel like it's working. They, they don't have a communication network with their therapist that they might be able to, to address that kind of with. Um, so we have a first A is aware of why they're doing it. The second one would be adequate instructions. Have you ever tried to build any flat pack furniture? Um, oh, like Ikea? Yes. Have you ever built anything from Ikea? Yeah, all the time. But that's kind of my thing. So I'm really uh, good at that. So, but imagine if you built something from Ikea and the instructions weren't in there. What would you be left with? You're left with just a pile of wood, aren't pile you? Pile of wood. Yeah, for sure. So... And I think this is a lot of the time that exercise or rehab programs turn into that what people don't have is adequate instructions to be able to refer to so that they know what they're doing and, and they can and they can refer back to, etc. You know, a piece of paper with a diagram on it just often doesn't fit the mm -hmm. fit the bill. So I imagine these people standing there in the gym, scratching their heads like someone else might do in front of a pile of IKEA furniture, which essentially is just firewood without mm -hmm. a bunch of instructions, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I think adequate instructions is very important. And, you know, even with instructions, some people are quite hopeless at doing that stuff. I'm not that great. I accidentally screwed a table into the floor once. What? Because I screwed it too far and it actually went into my wooden floor, oh my which God. didn't go down well with my wife. But No, I can't we'll, imagine it would. We'll, we'll move on from that. So the next day would be, are they confident? So simply saying, are you confident at doing this exercise? Do you feel like you are able, you've got this? Do you feel like you've got this? And if you don't, why not? Because before you leave, we can address that. Also, next, I've got agreed level of discomfort. And that's just simply, I want to know what's acceptable for, those, for that person. And we know that we've had recent research that discuss things like um, painful exercise being slightly more beneficial um and maybe if things are 
maybe we, we also drive a wedge between the idea of hurt and harm if things can you know if, if people are able to to kind of work through some discomfort that you might have um, especially if you're a chronic pain patient for example is exercise in the beginning likely to be uncomfortable yeah yeah it is i can vouch exactly. for that at least for me it was and it is for a lot of people. So saying to people, there might be some pain, what do you think is acceptable? And the fact that pain doesn't equal harm probably go quite nicely together. And once you have that agreed level of, of, of what is okay, what I'm okay with, and that would not be agreed just solely by me. I don't say, you know, this is what you go to, then you stop. I say, what do you think? Um, and what that also allows us to do is regress and progress. So if we have exercise that goes above that agreed level of discomfort, a lot of the time people will just stop. Pain is, num is one of the number one factors or the fear of making it worse is also another really, really big factor in people not adhering. So if we say to people, if it does hurt, if it is more than you're willing to do or, or more than you're willing to experience, why don't you knock it down a bit? You could do that in terms of reps. You could do that in terms of frequency. You could do that in terms of load. Mm -hmm. So facilitating people or empowering people to be able to regress and progress their own programs rather than just fixing and staying and, and you know, not having that basic aspect of control over, over what they're doing. Have it, giving the patient that control of regression and progression, I think is so important because as you know, for people even who don't have chronic pain, one day you wake up and maybe you didn't have the best sleep. Maybe you didn't eat as well as you wanted to, but you still want to get a workout in. Well, those are days that you maybe have to regress your program because of the way your body is feeling or, or the, you know, the signals that you're getting from your body. And I think for people with chronic pain, that can be magnified. So giving them the power to be able to adjust a program based on the way they felt when they get up in the morning is really powerful. Oh, it, it, look, I always say to people, if you feel good, do more. If you feel bad, do less. That's just as simple as it gets. If you feel good, do a little bit more. Don't go mad. You know, sometimes people feel great, do a load and then end up feeling really bad. So just explain, you know, sometimes we can get a bit uh, trigger happy with it sometimes. So you could do a bit more within reason. That's really, really good to do. But don't feel bad if you wake up, you've had a busy day the day before, there's stressful stuff going on and your, you know, your system's low, uh, you haven't got great energy, you're feeling a bit sensitive, it's okay. Don't, I always say to people, don't make your exercise another stressor. If your program is causing more stress than it's actually solving, then it's a problem. Yeah, you need to have a conversation with your therapist at that point, with the physio, no question. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it should not be. And this is the problem. When we focus on exercise and not on people, then it's more about that, you know, it's more about getting the exercise done, not actually the effect of the exercise on the person always. You know, and I, and I think that that's a really important point that we have lots of people who promote exercise therapeutically. And, and that's fantastic. I just think maybe sometimes they promote exercise um, and, you know, it, it's more about the exercise or the type of exercise, like loading or this or that, rather than actually what's right for the person. You know, it's just another way that we can become a bit polarized or, or tribal. Yeah. And I think another thing to think about, too, when you're working with, like you said, an actual person exercising is that if they, let's say, can't do what is prescribed for that day, it's important to tell the patient that they're still doing what they're still doing well, they're still doing a good job. Because like you said, with adherence, if they don't hit that exercise exactly as you have it prescribed, then they may feel like, oh, God, I'm such a loser, I can't even do this XYZ. Oh, and then all of a sudden, what's the point, right? That can devolve very quickly. Absolutely. So we have to be, in, and, and this again fits into this whole kind of pain sciencey thing that we have to be flexible with our explanations. We have to be flexible with the way that we deal with people. We have to be flexible in the um, programs and the and the treatment that we give people. If you can't be flexible and you can't, um, you know, m m m modulate what you do according to the person in front of you. You know, then, then I think that's that's a problem. 
Yeah, no doubt. And I also try and tell my patients if they're at a, in a gym situation to not compare themselves to the person next to them because, you know, that ha- can ha- happen easily where they'll say, well, I'm only doing this little bit of weight, but the person next to me is doing this huge amount of weight and we look like we're the same age yeah, or we look like we're of the same ability. So, you know, I, I think that's a huge aspect of prescribing exercise is to focus on you and being you in the moment and not what everybody else is doing. And it's another really great way to highlight that we're all very individual and you are treating this person as an individual too. And that is is a real plus point in their recovery. Yeah. All right. So what's the fifth A? So we have awareness of why you're doing it, adequate instructions, are they confident, agreed level of discomfort. What's the fifth? And then the ability to progress or regress. Perfect. So we kind of covered it. Yeah. Yeah. We already got that one. Great. Yeah. So if we have the agreed level of discomfort, then that gives us a benchmark to be able to say to people, do a little bit more or do a little bit less. You know, I I also think support network is a a really big thing. So there was a paper that looked at physiotherapist behaviours in adherence. So they looked at patient behaviours. Then they also looked at physiotherapist behaviours. Um, and I think these are quite enlightening um, for any therapist. I think it transcends physiotherapists, you know. And, and I, I think that it's important that we, uh, we see exercise as that anyone should be able to, to give exercise, prescribe exercise. You know, I see sometimes people like to claim that they're the exercise specialists or the movement specialists. And I actually think if the data and the research tells us that exercise is powerful, then anyone involved in healthcare, from doctors to osteos to to chiros to trainers to, to you know in, in within scope of practice to, to physios to sports therapists etc., should feel that exercise is within their remit. You know, I think that's a really important thing um, that everyone should should you know because it, I don't think it's a, a modality per se exercise in the same way that I don't think pain science is a modality. I think pain science is understanding people. And I think movement and exercise are just basic um, tenets of, of being a human being. Um, so I, I think we should see those as, uh, as things that are required um, rather than, than, than kind of modalities that we should apply. Maybe that's a definite problem, especially with pain science, that it, that it doesn't actually inform practice. It's, an, it's a modality that people apply and then maybe they go away and um, and do something else, you know, like needling or, or whatever. So, you know, these these behaviours, and as I said before, rather than physio behaviours, let's call them therapist behaviours, were, were clarifying doubts and questions. Again, people feel like they want to be heard. They want to be listened to. They want to be able to talk to you. Um, and being able to actually have a really good, solid explanation for why you're doing something um, how it's going to help them, uh, and on also dealing with any problems, it is a really big deal to people. Another one was supervising exercise, so actually helping people do an exercise. You know, in the UK for many years, we've seen people just give out sheets with uh, uh, photocopied sheets with pictures of people exercising. Um, actually, taking someone through an exercise, giving them some coaching points. Uh, potentially filming it on a smartphone with some of those coaching points is, is really powerful. Um, one of the big things that I focus with on people is on exercise. So if someone comes to see me, I try not to discuss their pain. I won't ask them, how's your pain? I'll ask them, how's their, your adherence? How much exercise have you done? Have you managed to do what we discussed? What were the problems? What were the successes? How can we um, make it better or how can we build on what has been successful in the first place so people in pain i think really want to talk about pain so if i can change that to activity and exercise um then i think maybe i'm putting more of an emphasis rather than on the problem what i think is going to be the most beneficial um thing for them and then finally uh, it was actually about justifying the usefulness of exercise which kind of fits in with with my first of the five a's which is aware of why someone's doing it if they have no, if you, if I don't have a good rationale or justification, I don't think that I'm very likely to see a, a benefit sometimes, you know, and if I don't see a benefit, then my expectation of outcome might not be very positive. If my expectation of outcome might not be positive, then my 
um, involvement with the process might not be very good. And as we know, there's a great paper out there on back pain that shows if you work on strength or mobility or stability or any of these different factors, none of those things need to change for people to get better um, from back pain using exercise. So it's the process and not the destination. So it's really important that we help people understand that and that we're able to kind of explain what works in terms of the actually the doing it rather than the, the, than the kind of the end result. I hope that made some sense. Yeah, no, that yeah. makes perfect sense. And on that, we are going to end except for one more question. Given what you know now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give yourself straight out of physio school? What advice would I give myself? Probably, I mean, I would say probably be more critical. It would definitely be be more critical. And sometimes I think we're all always quite accepting of, of what we've been taught. Um, and just, you know, sticking to sticking to, to kind of maybe a little bit more of the uh, of the evidence base would have been a powerful one. Um, and just always remaining critical. Just because you have a success doesn't always mean that it's for the reason that you thought it was going to be. Uh, or you thought, it, you know, um, it, you, it's not for the reason that, that maybe you reasoned it. And that I think that keeps us humble and it keeps us from running away with the, some of the ideas that we sometimes think that we, uh, you know, that, that we get kind of stuck with, if you like. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And before we hop off the call here, I know you're going to be kind of on tour. So I know you're going to be, and I'm going to plug for New York City because this is where I live. So... And you're going to be in the States. So can you tell everyone where you're going to be and where we yeah. might find that info? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So firstly, um, all, all the dates of where I'm going to be is www.corekinetic.com. So that's C-O-R-K-I-N-E-T-I-C.com. Um, and I, uh, 2018, it is 2018 next year, isn't it? Not 2019. No, nope, 2018. Um, 2018. I was kind of, you know, just jumping a year. Um I am going to be in Phoenix, firstly, 3rd and the 4th of February um, with my mate Mark Cargila. Um, he, he runs Modern Pain Care, very smart chap. I know Mark's at the uh, San Diego Pain Summit this year. And I'm also going to be in New York, Karen, in your I neck know. of the woods. I know. In, I know. Um, and that's going to be 14th, 15th of April. Um, and that's going to be at my friend Santiago's fitness studio. He's going to fit us all in. And we're going to have a fantastic course in NYC. I haven't been since 2014 and I, I'm really missing it. Um, and Karen can take me out and show me all the sites uh, and that will be fantastic. And then also I'm going to be Entropy in Chicago with Sandy Hilton and Sarah Hag, or Hargy as I like to call her. Um, and uh, off the top of my head, that's the 17th and 18th of may so yeah february phoenix new york in april and then may um in chicago so yeah i mean i'm gonna have to go home a little bit in between that although i'd love to take three months off um traveling uh, the states but yeah so so hopefully i get to see if people have uh, kind of liked what i've talked about then hopefully they um they might be inspired to come and hear me in a live environment Absolutely. And I will I thank you very much for coming on today. I mean it took Oh pleasure. Almost the better part of two thousand seventeen to get you on, <laughs> but I'm happy that we did because it was a great conversation. So thank you so Absolutely. much. Thank you. And everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in and for listening. And I hope you all have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.